you would please turn with me to Daniel 9. We're going to I'm going to read verses 24 through 27, but our passage that we're going to look at tonight is we're going to finish this chapter by looking at verse 27, which is the big controversial verse of this text. This entire passage is very controversial, but especially verse 27 is where uh, the biggest controversy is coming. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But before we do, let's begin by reading verses 24 through 27. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of, a, of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in trouble time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for a half of a week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wings of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Okay, now, last week we talked about verses 24 through 26. And let me just remind you again of the whole scheme that we, I left it on the board here. It's not a, a, a mysterious, odd circumstance that there are 77s. There are 77s in Daniel's future because there were 77s in Israel's past. When I say Daniel's future, Israel's future. And these 77s were 70 times during this 1,100-year period leading up to exile and Daniel's time in exile in Babylon. There were 70 times that they did not keep the Sabbath year. And so God's punishment for those 70 broken Sabbath years was 70 years of exile. Now, in looking towards Israel's future, there's going to be another 77 years that is going to bring about, again, what is, we know to be another and more severe and permanent exile and desolation. And so that's what's going to happen in this in this period this ended in exile, this period of exile. This is going to end in real destruction and desolation. And so that is the picture that we see from Daniel of this entire scheme of Israel's his, history from the beginning until it will end. Thank you. And so last week we saw in verses 24 through 26... we saw that those verses were about Jesus Christ. And we talked about how he is the fulfillment of those six purposes that are in verse 24. To finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up both vision and prophet, and to anoint the most holy place. We saw that fulfilled in Christ. 
We saw how it is Christ who is going to uh, who is going to be the prince that's spoken about in this passage, and he is the one in verse twenty six that is going to be the anointed one that will be cut off. It is going to be Christ and his people that are going to be the subject of verse 26. When desolation finally comes as a flood, that is going to all be fulfilled because of our Lord Jesus Christ and his purposes in the world. Now, when we come to verse 27 tonight, and let's just kind of plunge right in. The various views, it would be a gross understatement to say they are drastically different. Uh, it's hard to exaggerate the extent to which the views differ, differ. They are actually polar opposites to various views concerning verse 27. Let me just lay out for you basically the big picture. According to the futurist view, verse 27, the he there is Antichrist. And according to the traditional view, he is Jesus Christ. And so if we want to have a difference of opinion, if we want to be worlds apart, uh, I don't know how we could be more apart than this. Verse 27 is about the Antichrist. Verse 27 is about Jesus Christ. And so that is the, that is the, the far, far separation there are between the main views that we see uh, in our day. Furthermore, Verse 27 is fulfilled in the distant future, already 2,000 years uh, after uh, the coming of Christ into the world and some unknown you know, uh, uh, amount of time yet to be determined before Christ comes back. And verse 27 will be fulfilled at the end of days at Christ's second coming. That's the view that says that Verse 27 is about the Antichrist. It's also that all of this is in the distant future. None of these things have come about Daniel's 70th week has happened yet. The traditional view is that when Jerusalem is destroyed in A.D. Uh, 70, that this is the end of the period that Daniel is prophesying about, and that's when this 70th week uh, occurs. And so, again, we're, we're talking about thousands of years of difference. And we're talking about the difference between Antichrist and Christ. Now let me, uh, let me lay out for you, just very quickly, the view that is the prominent view in our day, that's the futurist view. And let's start with the, what we have by the 49 weeks, and oh, let, me, let me do it this way. We have, we have seven sevens. Seven sevens, and then we have uh, we have sixty-two sevens, and then there's one more seven to happen. And in the futurist view, there is a gap of time between this ending at the time of Christ, and then there's a gap of time of who knows you know what period of time that is. We know it's already two thousand years, but when when verse twenty-seven happens. This is going to be the secret rapture. It's going to happen here. 
And this is going to initiate this whole 70th week of events and the events that are going to unfold from it. Antichrist is going to come on the scene. And it is the Antichrist that's going to step in to this void. And he is going to, according to verse 27, if you read the text here, he is going to make a covenant with many for the one week. And so we've got a seven-year period here. This is going to be seven years. And Antichrist is going to step in, and he's going to make a covenant with Israel. The church is going to be gone at the secret rapture. Christ is going to, he's going to snatch his church secretly out of the world. If, you've, if you are familiar with the left behind books and, and, and all of that, uh, that's what that is about. So the church is going to, ha is going to have uh, disappeared. Antichrist is going to step in. And he's going to make a covenant with Israel. So what is Israel going to do? They're going to have this covenant, and they're going to build the temple. And the agreement that they have with Antichrist, who they don't know to be a bad person, uh, he, he's not revealed himself yet as their enemy, and he is going to uh, let them build the temple. They're going to start animal sacrifices. All of this is going to happen up until the middle point, which is that this is three and a half years. And so according to our text, it says, he'll make a strong covenant with the many for one week and for a half of a week. He shall put it, and at the half of a week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. So what is going to happen is during this period, Israel is going to build a temple. They're going to start uh, animal sacrifices. They're going to be happy. Uh, they're going to be, uh, they're going to think that, you know, they finally arrived where they want to be. And then suddenly at, at, at the end of three and a half years, Antichrist is going to have his, his true self come out. He's going, to, he's going to stop the covenant that he's made with Israel. He's going to stop, the, um, he's going to stop animal uh, sacrifices and the worship of Jehovah in the temple. And in this last three and a half years, this will be, I'll just put GT, this will be the great tribulation when Israel was again so horribly persecuted and... This is going to all end when we have the second coming of Christ, that is the, the visible coming of Christ, not secret, but the visible coming of Christ. Then there's going to be the kingdom that Daniel's been talking about is going to come. It's going to be the 1,000-year millennial kingdom. At the end... Of that thousand years, that will be, there will be a rebellion. There will be wars. There will be the great battle of Armageddon. And then we will have the new heavens and the new earth. So that's the futurist scheme that sees verse 27 being about Antichrist. Now, the traditional view is if we go all the way back to here at this point after the seven sevens and after the 62 sevens um, well, in the traditional view the 70th week is just right here and this is when Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 AD so it happens right after this period. And then the period from then all the way to here 
is the age we're living in now, the church age. Christ will come back the second coming here. So this is his first coming, exactly what this is. And then this will be the new heavens and the new earth. So something just very simple. Christ came into this world. He accomplished what he came to do. He ascends into heaven as the exalted Christ. He takes his place on the throne of God. He is ruling from heaven from, uh, from that point uh, at, uh, at his ascension. And he will rule all the way until he comes back. And when he comes back, it'll be the last day. He will judge the world, remake this world into the new heavens and the new earth. It's a very simple scheme, and this is uh, this is the uh, traditional view. And so these these things couldn't be more different. And of course, this is a simple version. If you've ever seen charts about this, my eyes, I have a, a simple version of the charts. They are on the board for you. So, how do we? get from to Antichrist or how do we get to Christ? How do we get to fulfillment in the past? How do we get to fulfillment in the distant future? And so let me, uh, let me start by just uh, making some comments and observations about this view. And the first one is this. The whole idea of a rebuilt temple itself is a blasphemy which screams against Christ and his church. Christ's church is a temple built of living stones. It reaches across every continent and people. It is what the New Testament tells us over and over and over again. God is building by his spirit through the gospel as our Lord Jesus Christ brings people into his church from every people, every tribe, it is the beautiful city that we talked about earlier when we talked about the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven into the new heavens and the new earth. We talked about that some weeks ago. Uh, that, that is what Christ is doing in this world. And so the whole idea of a rebuilt temple is something that should have no appeal to a Christian person. Uh, it stands against the purposes of God. Uh, the, the temple's that have been destroyed, have been destroyed by God uh, for a reason. Secondly, the idea that God's people would offer animal sacrifices to God at some future date makes the horror of the Romans, the Roman mass that we often talk about, uh, just child's play. And, you know, we often talk about the mass and how offensive it is and how blasphemous it is for uh, the Roman church to say that when they have their there are ceremonies every week that they are over and over again crucifying Christ. They are breaking his body and bread uh, anew. And, and that there's literal body and bread there. We are deeply offended by that. I would suggest that for a Christian, the idea that we're going to build a building and we're going to bring a bull into that building or into that complex or altar probably in front of that building and then we're going to take a ceremonial covenant knife and cut off the life of that animal to please God. I hope that that sounds to you as a horrible offense to what Christ has done in his once for all sacrifice for sin. Now, 
I want you to turn with me to the New Testament. And I want to go through some of the scriptures in the New Testament about end times and just see what they say and see how they mesh up with uh, this passage. Let's begin in Matthew chapter 24. I want to I see what we think about the scriptures in light of secret raptures and, uh, and some of these things that we see in this scheme. I want us to just look at that and see if we think the scriptures are consistent with this. Matthew 24 and verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with, with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now, let me point out a few things to you about Matthew 24 here. First of all, look at the idea in verse 27 that there will be lightning that is shining from, from uh, I believe it's from uh, the, uh, the east all the way to the west. If you have ever seen a lightning that was so dramatic that a streak of lightning just went all the way across the sky, uh, it, it is one of the most incredible things I've ever seen. We were at the beach uh, when a thunderstorm came through, and you really can't see that here in Rocky Mount. But it, when you're at the beach and there's nothing between you, it's just, it's just uh, sky uh, in front of you. There's nothing on the horizon to block the view. There are no lights. It's nothing. And then a storm at night uh, with lightning, uh, it just literally, you see streaks of lightning go all the way across the sky. It's one of the most incredible things uh, that I've ever seen to see lightning in that context. That is the picture here in verse 27 that when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, it's going to be a visual event like that. It's not going to be anything that's going to be secret, invisible. And notice the language in verse 30 that all the earth is going to see him and all of the earth is going to mourn. Then another thing that's going to happen is, is that his angels are going to gather his elect with a loud trumpet. And so everything that we're seeing here when it talks about the second coming of Jesus is not a secret rapture of his church out of the earth, but what we're seeing is we're seeing him appear on the scene in a, a great flash that cannot help but catch your attention. There's going to be a trumpet sound from heaven. Every nation, every people are going to see him as he, as he comes. The picture here is, is quite the opposite of everything that we see uh, from uh, this, this view that we have here. Now turn with, back with me to chapter 13 for just a moment of Matthew. And I want you to notice something else here in chapter 13. This is verse 27. And this is in the parable of the weeds. And I'm starting kind of in the middle of that parable. It says in verse 27, And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seeds in your field? How then does it have weeds? 
And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do, then do you want us to go and gather them? And he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into the barn. Now, in this scheme here, what who is gathered here at the secret rapture? <coughs> it's Christ's church. It's the righteous. It's Christians. And then when are the weeds gathered? They are not dealt with until at the end of this period of tribulation and turmoil when Christ at his second coming comes to deal uh, with the wicked and to bring judgment. And so what our text here in Matthew 13 is telling us is that who is going to be gathered first? It is going to be the weeds that are gathered first. And then after they are removed, then the, uh, God's people will be gathered into, uh, into, their, into their blessing. And so not only does it, does it not indicate a separate time of harvest, two different events... But if there is any time sequence indicated, it would indicate that it is going to be the wicked that are dealt with first. Look down at verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The, son, uh, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Now if you would turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Let's look at verses 18 and follow. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy are not, are, not, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to, to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now I want you to note that the whole creation is groaning and is waiting for something to happen. And what this world that is suffering in the agonies of the fall... Not just people, but this whole creation. What it's waiting for is described uh, it by the words, the revealing of the sons of God. Now, this word revealing 
is a word that we know. It is the Greek word apocalyptus. And it is the same word that we get apocalypse from. Uh, It's the word revelation of Jesus Christ. That word revelation is this word. So what creation is, is desiring is to see the initial appearing, the revelation, the manifestation of God's people. And, and what event is it that's going to happen, that's going to make that occur, occur this, de, this deliverance of all creation? Well, it's described uh, in, verse, uh, 20, in verse 23, at the end of the verse, as the redemption of our bodies. It is when we are going to be raised from the dead, is when we're going to be resurrected from the dead. It's when we're going to have our new, uh, our new bodies uh, given to us on the day of resurrection. And the creation is waiting for that. Because not only are we going to be delivered when we're raised from the dead and, re- and united with our new bodies, but the creation is going to be delivered as well. 1 John 3, 2. 1 John 3, 2. says, Beloved, we are God's children now, but what we will be is not yet appeared. For we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And so when our Lord Jesus Christ comes back and He appears, we are all going to be, when I say we, uh, those who are living are going to be transformed to be like Him. And those of us who have died, if it doesn't happen in our lifetime, we will also be raised from the dead and we will be made like him as well. And that's going to happen at his appearance. Acts 3.21. Acts 3.21. You'll notice the last word of verse 20. Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his prophets long ago. Some versions uh, translate this word, this uh, verse in terms like this, the day of the restoration of all things. And so when our Lord Jesus Christ returns from heaven, this verse says that he has gone into heaven and he's going to stay there until a particular day comes. And it is going to be the day of the restoration of all things. And when that day comes, when Jesus Christ is going to come for this purpose, to make a new heaven and a new earth, that is the, the goal that is in view when Christ returns. We think about the second coming uh, in a lot of ways, and one of those things is judgment and destruction and the burning up of this world. But we need to always remember that this world is going to be burned only for this reason. It's going to be burned so God can purge it and make it wonderful and new and right once again. And the goal is not to burn it. The goal is not even to have judgment for judgment's sake. The goal is to make everything wonderful, right, and good in the new heavens and a new earth. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 15. And so that's what we should expect to happen when on the day that our Lord Jesus Christ comes back. Not the initiation of a period of events that is going to span for at least a thousand years into the future. We should be expecting this to be the result of his return to this world. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. 
For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. For each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now I want you to note a couple of things about this. Christ is going to come back. The uh, obvious immediate effect is going to be the resurrection from the dead. He was the first fruits in his resurrection before he ascended into heaven. When he comes back, all of his people, and it's not just all of his people, by the way, all of the dead, good and evil, will be raised on the last day. It's not just God's people. It's not just Christians that will be raised from the dead. And so what's going to happen is he is going to deliver at that point the kingdom to God. And one of the things that must happen for him at that last day to deliver his, the kingdom to God, according to this verse, is that he must put every enemy under his foot, under his feet. And that last enemy on the last day that he is putting under his feet is death itself. When he comes and he raises us from the dead, Christ was the first fruit, but now the harvest comes in. All that have ever lived are raised from the dead. Christ at that moment has done exactly this. He has brought the very last enemy subject to him in fullness. And he will give at that time the kingdom to his father. And so we should expect on the last day when resurrection happens, we should expect immediately for us to be heading into the new heavens and the new earth, the kingdom having been given back to God, all having been accomplished. Look over at chapter, in this same chapter, verse 51 and 52. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. And so here again we have this picture of the last trumpet. This trumpet is going to, be, is going to sound and all of the dead are going to be raised from the dead when this trumpet sounds. Look back with me for a moment to John 5. I just want to point out one thing about this general resurrection of both the, the righteous and the unrighteous. John chapter 5, verse 25. Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and, and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now skip down to verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And so we don't have a, a two-pronged, two-step, seven-year interval between resurrection of Christians and then uh, the others who are dead at Christ's second coming, or even some other extension of that into the future. That's another, there's all kinds of issues that swirl around this view. But what we see very plainly here, Jesus says a day is going to come. He not only says a day, I believe the term here is hour. 
an hour is going to come when all that are in the tombs are going to be raised, some to the resurrection of blessing, some to the resurrection of judgment. Let's turn over to 1 Thessalonians. Let me do this real quick. 1 Thessalonians. I want to kind of race along here. And then we'll go back to Daniel for a moment and see in, that, in the light of this what we think that means. Uh, this is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16 and following. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I just want to point out to you these kind of statements in this second coming of Christ. The cry of command. Voice of an archangel. Sound of the trumpet of God. I would suggest to you that this is the most unsecret event that will ever be. We're going to hear Christ with this cry of command. We're going to hear the voice of the archangel commanding, I'm assuming, all the angels to go about their duties and responsibilities connected with this last great day of history. And we're going to hear again, uh, that as we've already read, we're going to hear the trumpet of God on this last day. Second Thessalonians 6 and following. 2 Thessalonians, excuse me, chapter 1 and verse 6 and following. Now notice the events here that we see. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's pause for a moment. I want to read a couple more verses. But let's pause for a moment because this is what we see. We see that God is going to repay with affliction those who afflict His church. And when is He going to do that? He is going to do that according to the statement here when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. With his mighty angels. And so that's when he's going to do that. What is another thing he's going to do in these verses? He is going to grant relief to his people. And when is that going to happen? It's going to happen in the same event. He is going, it's going to happen when he is revealed uh, from heaven with his mighty angels. And so these are not separate events. These two things are going to happen at the same moment as our Lord Jesus Christ comes back. There's going to be flaming fire. There's going to be the inflicting of vengeance when he appears. And that word revealed or appear is our word again. Apocalypse. The same word that we've already seen in other verses. Notice something else that's going to happen on that same day when he appears from heaven. Let's read on. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because of our testimony to you was believed. And so what's going to happen is there's going to be eternal destruction on that same day when affliction comes to those who persecute the church. 
And when the church gets relief, uh, there's going to be eternal destruction. There's also going to be the glorification and the, and the marveling uh, of Jesus Christ and his people on that day. Second Peter chapter 3. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are, are thus to be d- dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolve, and the heavenly bodies will, be, will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so what is going to happen on this great last day is the heavens are going to be burned up. This creation is going to be destroyed. When, when Christ comes back, there's not going to be the in, initiation of some period of time, se- sequence of events. What is going to happen is this world is going to be burned up. Uh, we just read about other things that are going to happen. But this world is going to be burned up in preparation for the new heavens and the new earth. And so I'm going to kind of cut uh, quickly on because we're going to run out of time. Revelation chapter 1 verse 5. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5. And I'm going to start in the middle of the verse where it says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God, a priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the, tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. And so what we see here is that when Christ comes back, when the heavens are burned up, when there's the resurrection of the dead and all these various things we've talked about, every eye will see him. Not just a, a, a raptured church, but even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will see him. Now let's go back to Daniel. And let's see if we can't look at verse 27 again in this light. I would suggest to you that the person in this verse is our Lord Jesus Christ. The first reason I think that's because verses 24 through 26, I think, have to be about our Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we come to this verse and it says, and he, I think it's just continuing in our thought, speaking about the Lord Jesus, he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week and for half a week He shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Now, the word in verse 27 is not the word for make a covenant. In verse 26, when it said that Messiah would be cut off, that term cut off is the word, the Old Testament word for cutting or making a covenant. And so that is clearly ritual covenant language associated with making sacrifice shedding blood as part of making covenant oaths. That is clearly what verse 26 was talking about when it says Messiah will be cut off. 
Jesus Christ establishes a new covenant in verse 26. Verse 27, the word here is not that word. This is the word that means to prevail or to cause to stand or to make strong. It is interesting to note that this word in Hebrew, which is gabar, G-A-B-A-R, is done by one who is a gibbar, G-I-B-B-O-R, who is a mighty one or a hero. And it is the language that is used in Isaiah 9 when it says that the child will be called mighty God. That's the term there that we see. And so the person that, that makes this kind of thing happen, to, to make a covenant to stand, to make it firm, to confirm it, to cause it to continue, uh, is a mighty one uh, who steps in to do exactly that. The language here is that of enforcing the terms of a covenant that is already in existence. It is not the language of creating a covenant. During the last seven, Christ will cause the covenant that his cutting off established to prevail. His being cut off in verse 26 establishes the covenant, the new covenant in his blood. The destroying of the city and sanctuary in verse 26 will not stop it from prevailing. The war of verse 26 will not stop it from prevailing. The desolation is decreed in verse 26 will not stop it from prevailing. Furthermore, this prevailing in verse 27 this causing his covenant to stand strong and to stand up and move forward is accomplished and not destroyed by putting an end to sacrifice and offering. What Jesus Christ is doing here is he is putting an end to the temple and the animal sacrifice in AD 70. In sober history, that is put an end to and it will never happen again. It's gone. If you go to Jerusalem today, you walk to the very point that the sacrifices were made, you're standing inside a, uh, a Muslim mosque. These things stand against the new covenant. These things stand against the six purposes to be fulfilled in Daniel 77 from verse 24. And when Jesus Christ brings every stone down and forever ends the Old Testament rituals, he is putting an exclamation point on his final sacrifice and on his church, the true Israel of God, he will cause his covenant to stand for the many, it says. And what is the, the term the many code language for in, in the Old Testament? It's the elect. It's his elect. That's always being referred to by the many. The elect. Uh, he's causing his covenant to stand for the elect. And as a side note, most, some say, all Christians were saved from the destruction that happened in Jerusalem in AD 70 because they fled, fled the city before the siege uh, took hold and they could not escape because they were following the, the words that Christ had speak, spoke to his uh, disciples concerning when you see these things happen, flee for the mountains. We'll talk about that in chapter 12. Even in that, Christ is faithful to his elect. So I would suggest to you what we see in verse 27 is Christ making his covenant prevail, stand strong, and he, makes, he takes away any uncertainty. If you were a Jewish slash Christian and you're thinking about these things 
and, and, and you have any amb ambiguity at all about, do I go to the temple and make animal sacrifice? Because that's still going on. Uh, you know, how do I relate to all that? Jesus Christ establishes the new covenant and he makes it utterly clear that this is how God's people are to worship and that the other is removed. So, I am going to do one more thing. I've got five minutes. Any questions about verse 27? Does that make sense to see verse 27 following from 24 and 25 and 26 to continue the thought that's been established already in those verses of what's happening in the 77s and then coming to uh, an explanation of what Christ is doing uh, here in this last week as he puts an end to temple worship and animal sacrifice forever. Any questions about that? If not, I'm going to do one more quick thing. I don't really want to do this, but I kind of feel like an obligation to do it. And that is I'm going to give you a timeline of Daniel's 70 weeks. The reason I don't like to do it is because I've already told you that no timeline works. We know that we have 610 years We've got, the, uh, we've got this period from uh, when the decree goes out, the year is 537. And then we've got this long period of time going forward, and it ends in 73 AD at the end of the Jewish wars when, Jew when all the Jewish people are finally captured and destroyed and it all comes to an end and peace is restored. And so this is 610 years. Now, what we see in all of these many, many schemes, and I haven't ever seen one that didn't have problems and questions and issues, is people take a 490-year, precisely 490-year thing, and they do this. They move it back and forth, trying to find a spot where the beginning point of, the, of 490 years is at a significant moment, and the ending point of 490 years is at a significant moment. And there's all kinds of schemes that, that some of them end with the birth of Christ. Some of them end with the, uh, with the public ministry of Christ. And so there's all kinds of schemes, and I don't think any of them work very well. Let me make a few quick observations, and I'm going to give you just an example of what I think is a reasonable uh, timeline for this period of time. The terminus aquo, the beginning point that it can't be earlier than, is 537. The terminus ad, ad quin is 73 AD, can't be after that. Total of 610 years. I would suggest that there's a reason that the prophecy says seven sevens, 62 sevens, and then there's the one final seven. That that's not just an odd way of saying 490. I think there's a reason for those three divisions and not just a peculiar way of saying 490. Now, we know that in the period before Daniel that there were 490 years where they didn't keep Sabbath years. And we know that that 490 years was over 1,100 years of history. And so those 490 years was not a consecutive period of time. 
There were times that there was revival. There was times of declension. There was times when they did follow God's commands more closely. There were times that they didn't. What we know is that there were 70 sevens when they did not follow God's commands. And so that first period was not a consecutive period of, of, uh, 490 years. And I would suggest that this indicates to us that we shouldn't try to find a 490 year period, that there's actually three periods that are going to be in view. Let me kind of cut a little faster to the chase. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that this first period right here is a generation in which people are returning to Jerusalem. They are there to rebuild the temple. They are there uh, uh, for the purpose of, um, of, uh, of establishing true religion, the right worship of God back in Jerusalem. Zerubbabel is going to be leading the people back during this first generation. The prophets Haggai and Zechariah are going to prophesy during this time that they have returned to Israel. And so we've got these people like Zerubbabel, uh, Haggai, and Zechariah in this period. And, and I'm going to suggest that this, is, that this generation is you know, approximately 40 years. And then I suggest that the seven sevens happens that. That this is a period of declension. That that first generation, we know that, we know that they fall away because what is going to happen? What is the next thing that's going to happen? in the scriptures about Israel. Who, who is the next person after Zerubbabel and Haggai and Zechariah? Who's the next person that's going to come on the scene that's real significant? It's Nehemiah. Nehemiah's going to come on the scene. And if, this, if, that's, uh, if that's seven sevens, uh, that is going to bring us to 448. If we have 40 years and then... 49 years here. It's going to bring us to uh, 448. And it brings us to the days of Nehemiah and the prophet Malachi, who are going to, uh, who, who for again, for a generation, are going to, uh, going to uh, be active. And there's a time of revival. And so 40 years, uh, let me see, what, that will bring me to 408 B.C., and I'm not trying to make this come out to the, to the minute because I think that's an impossible, uh, I think that's a fool's error to do that. I'm just trying to give a, a general scheme of how I think the 77s play out. And so we have, a time of, of, uh, we have a time of revival. And again, we have prophets on the scene. The scriptures are being written again. Nothing happened during that time like that. Now we have another period of declension, and it's a longer one. And it's going to be a period uh, of uh, where, again, after Malachi, who's the prophets? Nobody. This extended period of time is going to pass with no prophets coming onto the scene in Israel. And it's going to actually bring us uh, down to 26 A.D. Now, what do you think is significant about 26 A.D.? Who's going to come on the scene? Well, several people. First of all, let's look at just a couple of scriptures real quick. Malachi 4. Malachi 4. 
So we're all the way at the very end of our Bible. One of the very last things that are said before what I suggest is the 62 sevens, this long period of time with no prophets. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. We're at the very end of our Old Testament. Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with the de uh, decree of utter destruction. And so over in the New Testament, turn over a few pages, Matthew 11. So Malachi says Elijah is coming. Matthew chapter 11. Verse 13. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Mark 9. Mark 9. Verse 11. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased as it was written of him. Luke chapter 1. Verse 16. And he, this is talking about John, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go, be and, and he will go before him, Christ, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the, to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So who comes on the scene in AD 26 and then right on the heels of that just shortly thereafter? Our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, again, after this period of no prophets, now we're going to have the greatest of prophets, John the Baptist and Jesus himself, come on the scene. Now, I would suggest to you that we have another generation of 40 years, which brings us to 66 A.D., which is the year that the Jewish wars start. Now, this generation, one other verse, Matthew 24, 34. And then we'll stop. Matthew 24:34. Jesus speaking says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And so I would suggest to you that this generation, this generation, does not pass away until all these things take place. Now this is our, this is our final one times seven, our last year, our last week, I mean, of years. And in the middle of this, in three and a half years into this period, the temple will be destroyed animal sacrifice will forever be put to an end. By the end of these seven years, Israel will be completely uh, exiled from the land, never to cause uh, the kind of problems that they have 
up to now again. There's going to be one brief rebellion a few hundred years later in some remote areas, but this is the end of it for Jerusalem uh, forever. Just a suggestion of how Daniel 77 might work. Uh, something that just makes sense to me uh, from some of the various views I've seen. We know, I, I would suggest that we know that verse 27 is fulfilled by Christ. And it is fulfilled in the time between, between Daniel's prophecy and AD 73. What the exact scheme is, how the exact dates play out, uh, I don't think that we have enough information. God hasn't revealed to us the details. But I feel confident that if we were to have a little more information, that we would find out that it is exactly as the scriptures say uh, that it will, will be. Any, any questions or comments about that? This little scheme that I've offered to you? Okay, let's close with a word of prayer.